0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have a coaching series podcast. So we're going to dive into a very specific topic today. Today's topic is going to be exercise selection and not just the importance of exercise selection, but also how to pick the best exercises for you specifically. So this is really going to be the, um, the, in the most truest sense, like what does exercise selection look like from an individuality perspective or an individualized programming aspect, right? So we're getting like down and deep with the core of tailored coaching um, and yes, pun intended and plug intended as well because I love my company and I love my people. But um, nonetheless, we are going to specifically talk about um, the different aspects. There's seven of them. There's different aspects of what matters most for exercise selection and why it even matters in the first place. So there's a few different things we'll talk about today. But the big thing here is that we talk about it because I think there's different aspects of program design. And I was trying to decide, like, you know, which aspect am I going to cover first? Because, as you know, as I've mentioned in this coaching series, the goal with this coaching series is to cover very specific topics and dive as deep as possible. Because that's what our coaching is really about. Like, our coaching is is the the way I look at it is, like, our coaching is, is quite literally taking the science and trying to apply it in the most practical and... Uh, dare I say stress-free, I don't like the word stress-free because I think sometimes we, we talk about stress-free and, and especially with like flexible dieting and stuff like that. And people almost get like too into trying to make things so damn easy that they forget that great things take hard work. And sometimes it's okay to sit back and go, you know what, this isn't going to be easy. It could be simple, but it's not going to be easy. So th- there we go. I'll say simple. So my goal, our goal with, with tailored coaching is to create a simplistic way for everyday people to use the science in a A results based manner. So, what we do creates success with individuals, obviously. And what we're after is taking the science and applying it in a practical way and in a lifestyle oriented way. And that's what these podcasts are about. These podcasts are kind of taking topics and showing you to display how we do that. So, um, before we get into it real quick, the uh, not necessarily the sponsor of this podcast, but a quick plug for this podcast is going to be to sign up for our coaching. So, if you are somebody who is listen to this podcast because you're trying to figure out what the best exercises are for you or what the best training program is for you or what it takes and how to periodize and how to program and blah, blah, blah. Everything, anything, whatever the question is, whether it's training or nutrition or accountability or or communication or coaching or timeline or how long will this take or how do I manage my health and hormones while I do it. You should hire a coach and you can go to Method.com and you can click the big yellow button on the homepage. When you do that, it's going to go to an application. Um, it's going to take you through a, a page that teaches you a little bit more about what we do. But at the bottom of that, there is a form. It'll take you 30 seconds. You fill that out, you get a free call, and we can talk to you about coaching and see if it's a good fit for you. Now, today's topic, we're going to dive in. It is how to pick the best exercises for you. So we're covering exercise selection. And the reason I wanted to cover this is because I think that You know, There's two things. One, exercise selection tends to get outshined by volume, uh, frequency, and intensity, or just programming in general. And a lot of people think of programming, they're like, how many sets should I be doing? How many reps should I be doing? And that's volume. And they're like, how heavy should I be lifting? And that's going to be intensity. Um, How hard should I be pushing it? And that's going to be RIR, which is one of the most important things. And we'll do a whole topic on that. Um, And then they go frequency. How often should I train a muscle? Should I be training my glutes three times a week, two times a week? Is one time a week enough? How do I program that stuff, right? And we are going to be diving into each of those. So just so you know, don't worry, we will be actually doing a full podcast on Periodization versus programming. We're going to do a full podcast on volume training, uh, volume, intensity, and frequency of training. We're going to do a full podcast on RAR and all that stuff. So, I have a long list of coaching series topics to cover, but I wanted to cover exercise selection before those because I think a lot of people forget about how important exercise selection is. And a lot of times it gets outshined by these other aspects, not because those are more important or less important, but because they're equally important. However, people talk about it more, and there's more science behind volume, intensity, frequency, RIR, things like that, and it makes sense if you think about it, because how it's very difficult to assess or or research exercise selection when it's such an individual thing. Now there is research on uh, you know single joint exercises versus uh, multi joint exercises. So like for example, like a squat versus a leg extension or something. There's also uh, ones on bilateral versus unilateral and. Most of these research studies don't really tell us like, ah, this is better than this. It it more or less tells us that things are interchangeable and it tells us that there's different ways to go about it, right? There's different answers. There's different, these things can all work. And most importantly, they work for different individuals. But the problem with research is that research is based on averages. Coaching is based on individuals. So when they look at a study, it's not that the study's wrong or it's not helpful, it's actually extremely helpful and it gives us kind of like the backbone of, of our theories and, and what we're gonna dive into with clients when we coach. However, research studies are based on averages. So we know that they're taking a huge group of people and they're trying to pull the average amongst all these people in order to give the best general advice. Whereas when we work with an individual, it is an individual and therefore not every study, especially studies on exercise selection are, is going to apply. So part of the reason is that, um, and the problem is that, you know, most people claim to have the best exercises for blank muscle, insert whatever muscle you want to Google search. And, and if you go to Google or if you go to any social media platform, people will say, this is the best exercise for shoulders. This is the best exercise for building your glutes or whatever it may be. Um, and you will see a lot of my content, not to like toot my own harm, but say, this is a great exercise for chest. Or glutes or shoulders or this is a great exercise for glutes if you have long femurs this is a great chest exercise if you don't have machines like there's there's caveats to everything because there's not a blanket statement like the bench press isn't the best chest exercise it is for some people but it isn't for others right so it, it really is context specific so we can't say that blank is the best exercise for blank muscle indefinitely which is You know, really, it's just an ignorant thought from an inexperienced trainer. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast, because I wanted to explain like there's more to it. And when you work with so many people like I have over the years, you begin to realize that the best exercises for different people are always different. And it's for a a multitude of reasons. Limb length, flexibility, mobility, limitations with those two, uh, neurological efficiency. So how skilled uh, skilled you are at the movement. Um, your experience level, your preference, what equipment you have available, everything. And so because of all that, I really wanted to do this podcast to show you each area that it actually matters and why it's so important. So before we get into the seven aspects of how to pick the best exercise for you, I also want to shine light a little bit so on why exercise selection can also be more important than volume or intensity or frequency or anything. And the reason is pretty simple. Volume, intensity, and frequency doesn't exist without proper exercise selection. I'll take that back. It exists, but volume and intensity and frequency doesn't matter without the right exercise selection. Because if you are not doing the right exercise for you, you are not targeting the muscle with a a isolated focus. You are not targeting the muscle, creating tension or metabolic fatigue or all the things overload, progressive overload, the things that actually matter. So when we consider what makes a muscle grow, it's tension and it is work. So how much total volume are you directing to that muscle, which volume doesn't matter unless you're actually directing something to the muscle. If you're doing a bunch of curls trying to grow your arms, but you're shrugging and, and swinging, now you're working your spinal erectors and your low back and your traps by shrugging your shoulders. So does the amount of volume you're doing for that curl even matter for the target muscle of the bicep? No, it's junk volume. Whereas if you were very articulate with your exercise selection, you can pick the best exercise for your joints, for your mechanics, for your form, for your technique, for what makes you feel good, what allows you to accumulate the most volume while still recovering, what allows you to do the highest level of intensity or load without banging up your joints, what allows you to repetitively train the muscle with a high frequency without banging up your joints or having neurological fatigue, so on and so forth, right? So all these aspects only work efficiently if your exercise selection is dialed in. And to go beyond that, obviously, exercise form is very important. However, there's certain people who are just not going to do well with certain exercises. And I see this all the time. We have people who are almost so technical with exercise, execution, and form, which isn't a, a horrible problem to have, but they're so, so unbelievably OCD about it that they don't have a hard effort or intensity. They're so afraid of swinging or using any momentum or not being perfect that they're not even overloading the muscle. And sometimes people will spend... Months working on an exercise, trying to perfect their form and get so proficient and, and skilled at a specific exercise or movement pattern, just to realize later on that that exercise isn't the best exercise for them because their joints don't match up to what that leverage is, or their body is just not designed to squat that way, or curl that way, or press that way, or whatever it may be because if you have really long arms, I'm sorry but the bench press is not going to be the best way to overload your chest because your triceps are going to slow you down. It's a much further distance to travel with long arms than with short arms. So you're going to be better off doing single arm movements or fly based movements, so stretch based movements, right? That's the other thing. If we consider what also matters for hypertrophy or something, so the stretch based component of a muscle is one of the key drivers of hypertrophy. They've learned a lot about this in recent research, right? And we've talked about this plenty of times where if you lengthen the muscle, you are stretching the muscle. And if you stretch or lengthen the muscle while under load, you are much more likely to build muscle. In fact, research now supports the idea that a partial range of motion can actually outperform a full range of motion, which is crazy. That, that shocked me to hear. But it makes sense when you start digging into why. And the reason why is because the only way a partial range of motion will outperform a full range of motion for muscle growth is because if you do that range of motion, the partial range of motion, while under the stretched position, then you are going to trigger more muscle growth because the lengthened portion of the, the lift is the most important lift, uh, portion of the lift in order to build muscle. So if we know that and alls we're ever doing is close grip bench press because that feels good on our shoulders or neutral grip bench press even, we're not really placing our pecs under a lot of stretch in that situation. You know, Even if we're only doing hip abductions and hip thrusts, or bridges for glutes. Are you putting your your glutes under a big stretch position? It's why some people are like, squats are the best for for glutes. And you look at them and you're like, damn, you do have big, great glutes. That sounds funny, but it's true. You have big, great glutes and you squat a lot. And you don't do anything else. And then the next person you go, you squat all the time and you just got a bunch of quads. Well, why is that? Well, because one person has a femur length that probably sits them back into their hips and makes it a glute dominant movement. And the other person is very short femurs or short legs or long torso. And that causes them to lean forward. They have great ankle mobility. Now it's a quad dominant movement, right? So is it because the squat is great or not? No, it's because the, if the squat puts your glutes in a big stretch position and it takes more tension into the glutes versus the quads, then the squat is a great glute exercise. But if it doesn't, it's not. And the problem with hip thrust is that, if, especially if you have long legs, it's it's a it's a contraction based, a shortening based movement. So you're bridging up and squeezing your glutes, which is great. You should definitely do the hip thrusts. I love the hip thrusts, and I program it for all my ladies who want to their glutes, grow their glutes. But if you're not creating a, an extended range of motion on the bottom phase by doing a deficit hip thrust or um, maybe like some heavy RDLs or, um, reverse hypers in like really letting your legs fall underneath the pad when you go on the bottom of it or a step up with a high box, you're never placing those glutes under a stretch position. So long, long story short, before we get into these, these seven points is that exercise selection is just as, if not more important than volume, intensity, and frequency, because without the proper exercise selection, most of your volume, intensity, and frequency, either A, doesn't matter as much, B, you're not going to get out uh, as much of what you could out of your intensity, volume, and frequency, or you're going to get injured along the way, so you can't do very much of it. So if you're doing a bunch of volume and you're doing high intensity or you're doing a lot of frequency and you're doing movements that don't match up with your mechanics, they just don't feel right with your mind-muscle connection, you can't overload them properly, you can't track your progress, or you're not taking the muscle through a range of motion that actually stimulating growth, you're doing a lot of volume that is going to bang up your joints and and fatigue your nervous system without actually fatiguing the muscle in a way that it's going to adapt and grow plain and simple. So exercise selection is very, very, very important. It's important for you to understand and, and, and focus on before trying to overly commit to improving your execution and form, because if you're doing so on the wrong movement, it's not for you. We all know those movements that just don't really agree with us. Why spend time trying to get really good at that movement if it's just not a good movement? And usually the answer is because so-and-so said this is the best movement and -and so-and-so programmed this movement. And this is why I have a very open dialogue with my clients. And I say, hey, make sure that you're telling me what feels good and what doesn't, because if something doesn't feel good, I'm going to try to help you figure out your form And if we go multiple weeks in a row without it clicking, or even if your form looks great on my end and I, and I can't see any issues with it, but you're not feeling the muscle. We're going to remove this exercise because there's a million exercises we can use, you know, and this is something that's going to be implemented in the tailored trainer as well, which I'm very excited to announce is going to be releasing soon. Like we've been working very, very hard. I've had, I I have meetings every week for this app and it's coming together. It's going to be really dope. And I've signed up for so many different workout apps over the last year And I promise this is going to be better. I'm so excited. But there's going to be some video content in there that's very exclusive to the app. And one of them is is going to be me showing you how to do this properly. So if you're following a program in the trainer and it calls for an exercise and that exercise does not work well with you, I'm going to teach you how to use a different exercise, even if that exercise isn't listed as a substitute in the workout, which I will have in there so you can swap exercises easy. Um, But again, that's going to be based off what I generally know from working with a lot of people. So, Okay. That's a, uh, a long winded explanation as to why this, this matters. Now we have to determine. So this as an exercise selection. now we're going to run through the seven things. And I, and I actually don't think this podcast will take too long. So bear with me. I think this will be, we'll probably be a a 30 minute podcast or so, which is going to be great for you, which you already know. I don't know why I'm saying that because you looked at the time before you started the, the fucking episode. So anyway, what matters Right, we know that exercise selection matters, but how do you determine the best exercise? So, I, I've hammered you guys and dated you guys with all the information you need, and now you know, okay, exercise selection matters. So, before I go into what training split should I do, what kind of, um, and I shouldn't say that because you got to have a training split so you can start laying out exercises, but how much frequency should it have, and how much volume should it have, and what should my intensity be, and, and should I overly focus on form if it's still not working? All these things I just went over, you know how important this all is now, but now you get to a point where you go, okay. Well, how do I determine what those best exercises are? I know I need to find those best exercises, but how do I figure that out? Like, what do I got to do to make sure I know, okay, this is the best exercise for me, and that's what I'm going to teach you right now. So, the first thing is you got to pick your goal, right? So, what is your goal? That's number one, and for the context of this episode, we're going to stick with hypertrophy as the main goal for a few reasons. Number one, that's the main thing I give a shit about. I've... I've if I'm being completely transparent, I've, I've dug into, I've, I've trained for strength multiple times. I've, uh, I, I committed to a powerlifting meet. I actually paid for it. So I lost my money on that one, but, um, I started getting kind of banged up and I was so busy with the move and everything. I couldn't commit to it. So if you guys missed the episode where I talked about quitting on my goal of, of going to a powerlifting meet, um, now you're hearing it but I, uh, my knee was just acting up and I was moving. So I wasn't able to get all my training sessions in the end of last year and the beginning of this year were so hectic for me that I wasn't fully able to commit to a goal like that. Um, and it also taught me a lot about like what matters most because in situations where I can't fully commit, um, or I have trouble committing, I still have a better adherence when the goal is hypertrophy versus strength because I care about more hypertrophy. It taught me that. It showed me that like, you know what? I really love training bodybuilding. My joints feel better. I like the the visual effect of building muscle. Yeah, it's a vanity goal, but I, I like being jacked. I like being a dad that is fucking jacked and the strongest dude in the room and all that kind of stuff. And you don't have to be a powerlifter to be the strongest dude in the room. So hypertrophy is my main goal. And, and that is the main thing we work with people because people hire us for building muscle or losing fat. Primarily losing fat—that's our main niche client. But even those individuals, when you are trying to lose fat, you want to train for hypertrophy. You want to train for muscle growth. Um, so it's important to know that. So we're going to stick with that for the the main point of this. So first, you have to pick a goal because you know um, when you pick a goal, it sets the stage for how we assess the best exercise. Essentially, like it kind of is that foundation. And the more specific your goal gets, the more specific the exercise selection will be. Um, and so, for the sake of this podcast and just being direct, like. I want to cater to what you guys are typically more focused on, which is going to be hypertrophy. But um, we can still discuss strength and we can still talk about strength because the reality is, is that, you know, your goal being strength doesn't change this philosophy or this method of, of choosing the best exercise as much at all. So we can kind of cover both. But if you don't know what your goal is, it's hard to determine the next six things. So number one is is picking your goal because if you know it's hypertrophy, then you know, like I said earlier, the 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 aspect of a range of motion that increases the likelihood that you will place the muscle under a stretched position while under load is greater than that's going to be a better exercise versus uh, an exercise that doesn't really focus on that, but has a fast contraction rate or is specific to the thing you're trying to get strong in. So if you're trying to get strong in squatting, you need to be doing squats. You don't want to pick a squat that allows you to create a big stretch on your quads or glutes. You want to pick a squat that allows you to accomplish a range of motion that feels good on your joints and allows for the heaviest load. So this, knowing this is if my goal is strength, I got to focus on the things that are most important for strength. If my goal is hypertrophy, I'm looking at how do I create more tension on the muscle, not more load for the nervous system? How do I create a bigger stretch? So it breaks down the muscle tissue versus strength is like, I don't really want to create a big stretch because it's going to increase fatigue and not allow me to perform at a fast rate or have a lot of peak output when I'm performing the squat because I'm sore. Whereas with muscle growth, I don't care if the weight drops a little bit if I'm sore from accomplishing what I want to accomplish or I'm fatigued from accomplishing what I want to accomplish to get to my goal. So point being is is we need to know that we also need to know that like for, for strength, you need lower volumes, higher intensities, so less reps, less sets, but, but more weight. For, for hypertrophy, you're probably gonna wanna have lighter weights, not light weights, because you still wanna push close to failure, but lighter weights with higher volume, so more reps, more sets. And knowing that means I'm gonna choose exercises that allow me to do that safely and still recover. So if my goal is hypertrophy and I'm choosing moderate to lighter loads, so that I can accomplish more reps and total sets per muscle group per session or per week. That means I'm gonna be choosing exercises that are extremely joint friendly because I have to do a lot of volume. This is why for hypertrophy there's a much more diverse uh, exercise selection because we can use cables and machines and dumbbells and barbells and bands and all kinds of stuff so long as we can target the muscle with the aspects of tension we want, mechanical overload, uh, overloading the stretch phase, metabolite accumulation, building like the pump, all those things while keeping my joints healthy, right? And and managing my neurological fatigue. So knowing your goal is very, very important. It kind of sets the stage for everything else. And then after that, we get into number two, which is goal-specific movement patterns. So knowing that we need these these, so we have our goal and then we go into goal specific movement patterns, knowing what the goal is, we can better choose what movement patterns exercises we need to use essentially kind of what I was getting to. Right. So, um, and there's really just a few, honestly, there's like five movement patterns. When we think about training, push, pull, hip, hip hinge, knee, so like when I was in college, this is what we did. Push, pull, hip, knee, core. That was kind of like our, our um, motto for programming, right? And what that means is like you push something, you pull something, you do a hip hinge. Knee meant knee dominant, but it's a squat. So you could also say push, pull, hip hinge, squat. And then some people will say carry, but carry is, is like a farmer's carry something, which is great for your core. And it is a very important functional movement pattern. I just say core. Now, if you're like, well, core isn't a movement pattern like push is. And that's true, but the the reality is is that you should be training your core. Sometimes that means you're not moving at all because maybe you need to do a weighted plank or you need to do a a LLPT plank, so a a long lever posterior tilt plank. So you're putting yourself in a specific position. You're just bracing and holding. It's for stability. Maybe it is a carry. Maybe it's spinal flexion and you're doing a sit-up or a hanging knee raise. Either way, we have these specific movement patterns and we are going to use exercises for those things. So even with push, there's push and press, I would say. So push is horizontal, press is overhead. There's no literature to say that that's accurate. That's just how I frame it, right? Push. I mean, technically, they're both pushing. They're both pressing. But I always say push is horizontal. It's so like a bench press. Press is is uh, overhead, like a overhead press. Um, pull would be down, in my opinion. Row would be uh, horizontal. And you should always choose so vertical and horizontal, you should always choose the horizontal pattern first because it's easier on shoulders. But from there, once we have these movement patterns laid out, we get into specific exercises for each of those. So, for example, the hip hinge could be a sumo deadlift or an RDL or a hip thrust. Even though they're all hip hinges, the sumo deadlift is clearly better for strength, while the RDL is more, uh, much more specific to hypertrophy. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Because the sumo deadlift is using a wide stance, which limits the range of motion, so it limits the distance traveled from the bar to the top lockout, so that you are better leveraging your lengths and your limb lengths and the the uh, essentially the center of gravity, all these kind of things, so that you can lift heavier. Plain and simple. Like if if you have long legs and a sumo deadlift feels good, then you're going to do a sumo because it's and this is why people say is sumo cheating, and I don't think it is, but. They say that because it's a shorter range of motion compared to a conventional deadlift. Um, point being, it's going to be optimal for strength. Does that mean you can't build muscle with it? No. It just means that it is a design, it's an exercise that is literally being altered so that you can lift heavier. While the RDL is more specific to hypertrophy because you're, you're intentionally slowing down the negative while going into a stretched movement. So when we look at an RDL or a stiff leg RDL, especially, it's great for glute and especially hamstring growth. Because you're placing the hamstrings under load while stretching the muscle. So if we look at it, we're literally taking the muscle and we are stretching it under load, which we've said multiple times is one of the key drivers for hypertrophy, right? So if we look at any type of movement, the more we place that into a stretch, which is why I love like a dumbbell bench press yeah, you can probably lift heavier with a barbell, but barbell's fixed, so you stop at your chest unless you have a Canebird bar, which Giant does have. So if you go to Giant, they have a uh, uh, Titanic bar or something like that. It's just a bent bar. It's great for building your chest. Um, TCM 10 saves you 10% off on it, but... A dumbbell bench press is the same thing. I can get lower than my chest, which creates a bigger stretch on the chest. And RDL does that as well. You have your hips high. You're stretching the hamstrings while under load. You have a heavy barbell in your hands, and you're just stretching your, your hamstrings under load. And that is key for hypertrophy. You're not going to build as much strength doing RDL as a sumo because you, you're limited by how much you can lift because you're in that stretched base movement. But the stretch-based movement is more important for hypertrophy than just swinging an RDL or doing a sumo deadlift as heavy as you fucking can. Right. And, and so that's a good example of, of two different hip hinges. And like the hip thrust is another hip hinge that I mentioned, but it tends to go, um, a step further and be more like glute hypertrophy specifically than the RDL or sumo would be. But even then, like you could use it for strength because you can make it a shorter range of motion or just focus on, on, um, how much you can lift, but you can also elevate your heels, for example, and have a bigger stretch at the bottom. And you could be focused more on hypertrophy and doing higher reps. So that's a really multifaceted exercise. Um, but the key here is pretty simple. Like if we're looking at movement patterns for each muscle group, we are training, um, we can have those and then create a roadmap of exercise from there. And this is often what I do when I, when I teach trainers how to do this in uh, in like presentations I've done for gyms and stuff like that is we'll look at a like almost like a a flow chart, right? And we have hip hinge and then we can go down this chain of events of every type of hip hinge and every progression and regression it is every muscle group, it hits what targets more of the neurological versus the muscular adaptation. And, and we can really determine like what exercise is going to be best for what goal given the tool, the uh, the stretch versus the shortening, so the lengthen versus the shortening position of the muscle, the range of motion, so on and so forth, how much potential load you can lift, like you can load a barbell more than a kettlebell, for example. So um, really, really important. So we have number one being what is your goal? You have to have a goal before you can even dive into how to find the best exercises. Then you have goal-specific movement patterns. So we have push, pull, hip hinge, uh, squat dominant, and then something for your core. And then we can determine the best exercises for those movement patterns for our goal. Then we get into the mind-muscle connection in the pump, which is specific for hypertrophy. And this is a really good sign that you are targeting the right muscle for hypertrophy. So number three is mind-muscle connection and, and quote-unquote, getting the pump right or the burn. Um, And this is obviously, again, more specific to muscle growth compared to strength. However, if you're trying to strengthen your triceps for the bench press, because maybe your weak point is a lockout, you can bench, and then as soon as you get halfway, you give out because your elbows can't lock out the bar, which is typically a weak tricep issue you still should be feeling your your triceps while doing it, right? Um, So if you're doing like, for example, um, maybe you're doing tricep pushdowns and you're, because you're trying to build your triceps to improve your strength on the bench press and you're doing tricep pushdowns, you're like, "I, I just feel my traps working and my forearms. Okay, something's wrong here, right? You're not training, even if we're trying to, because look, a bigger muscle has the potential to be a stronger muscle, and there's research to prove that. The more muscle fibers you have in, a, in, a, in an area, in a muscle, the more potential it has neurologically to get stronger. So if you have weak triceps, and that's stopping you from being a strong bench presser, or you have weak calves or weak quads, and those are stopping you from being a great squatter for strength, then you should be doing calf rages or leg extensions or uh, tricep pushdowns for the bench. Because you're going to, recruit and build more muscle fibers and more muscle fibers have the capability of recruiting more motor units from the nervous system to allow a better expression of strength. So sometimes building more muscle tissue is actually the exact answer to building more strength and getting stronger. So you should be still feeling those triceps when you're doing that or the quads when you're doing a leg extension. But um, when we talk about hypertrophy, the pump is very specific to that. And this is because a pump generally requires a specific duration of the muscle being placed under tension um, or a certain amount of reps being done before this quote-unquote pump even occurs. And the time under tension or the rep count or, or the pump in general isn't the end-all be-all for muscle growth, of, of course. Um, however, it is closely linked to the direct mechanisms that do result in muscle growth. And what this means is that, again... If we recruit more muscle fibers, then we can uh, ac- accumulate more strength. And if we have more strength, we can overload the muscle more. And if we can overload the muscle more, we can place more load while in a stretch position, like I said earlier. But that also means we can do more volume because now we can do 200 pounds for 12 reps instead of 10 reps, for example. So... Uh, if we can't feel it in the right muscle, we don't know that we're targeting the right muscle, which means that we can't even go down that chain of events of improving that muscle to get stronger and then later on increase volume and tension on the muscle. So it's really important. But on top of that, there's, there's also research to support the pump being something um, important from a metabolic standpoint. So when we have a good pump, what we're doing is creating lactate and metabolites. And metabolite accumulation is essentially metabolic fatigue. It's metabolic waste, right? So it's lactate or lactic acid as some know it when we accumulate this lactate and we buffer it out or we accumulate metabolites in, the, in the, the muscle and we're creating a pump and a burn and a fullness, we are literally creating metabolic fatigue in the muscle. We are accumulating metabolites and there is direct research that supports metabolite accumulation or metabolic fatigue or even lactate specifically to growth of that muscle tissue. It's bringing more blood flow in there, so on and so forth. So the pump is not only a great learning tool to let us know like, hey, this is a good exercise for us to choose in our program because I can feel it. And that's a sign that if I can feel it, I'm actually targeting it. And if I'm targeting it, I have the potential to build it or get stronger with it. Um and not get injured, right? Uh and then the other aspect of it is is that the pump that you're feeling is actually directly tied to muscle growth. So Arnold was correct. The pump is important. Um number 4 of choosing the right exercise. So again I'm, because I take so fucking long to get through these. I'm going to recite them each time. So we have number one, pick your goal. Number two, picking specific movement patterns for your goal. Um, and then we have the mind muscle connection or the pump that I just went over. And now we have number four, which is site specific muscle soreness and following up on number three, that last one is that the direct tension or stimulus in the muscle should also lead to some direct muscle soreness. So as you train more, most people understand it's common to be less sore, right? But some soreness should always be present in your recovery or your training Uh, because if you're not then you might not be training hard enough however if you are sore in a indirect muscle or have more soreness in a joint than in a specific muscle group you trained then it's an issue and you're probably not using the right exercise for you or that muscle so an example of this would be a high bar back squat for your quads but you feel it more in your low back you can't even stimulate your quads for growth if your low back is holding you back from actually building enough um strength or overload or stretch or metabolize in the quad. So if you are continuing to squat for back, for quad growth because somebody says it's a great exercise, but every time you do it your low back gets sore. So you never break through a certain rep count or a certain volume or a certain amount of load on the bar and it holds you back tomorrow because your low back hurts, so now even your upper body session kind of sucks. It's not a good exercise for you cuz the indirect soreness is holding you back from creating direct Tension or a direct stress stimulus in the muscle you're trying to target and then the next day potentially in other muscles because you're low back sore. So you can't train hard, right? Um, Another good example would be an overhead press for shoulders, right? So you'll feel uh, you'll have localized fatigue from doing dumbbell seated military presses, for example, which one of my favorite exercises for shoulders uh, personally. Uh, But you may also have some non localized fatigue from heavy standing overhead presses in your lower back, right? So this makes one better for strength overhead press because we can increase more total load as we progress that movement because it's a barbell so we can keep loading it up uh so neurologically speaking the, the barbell overhead press might be better for strength um, but the seated military press is probably better for hypertrophy because we can increase more total volume directly to the delts without any indirect fatigue on our joints or our nervous system whether that's low back or shoulder joint anything like that because We are seated and we're supported by a bench, which means that we don't have to stabilize our spine nearly as much, which takes out our core of the movement and maybe some functional strength. But again, if we're trying to isolate and grow muscle, that's much better because then we're not targeting or or hitting a bunch of things and getting sore all over. We're getting sore in our delts, which we want. So. Again, I think that a lot of people assume like, oh, as you get sore, you're, you're not going or as you get more experience, you're not going to get sore anymore. And, and I would disagree. You should always have some site-specific muscle soreness. And if you're doing exercises that aren't creating some kind of soreness, whether that's like post-session, you feel it just kind of tight and burning in a pump and all that, or the next day you're like, damn, my chest is kind of sore from those benches or the glutes are kind of sore, then you're not directing the stimulus to the muscle properly um, because You will always get a little sore. Now, the caveat here is is you won't get as sore. And so when you're a beginner, you're definitely going to get more sore. But when you're a beginner, you're also going to see more rapid results. So we all know about newbie gains. When somebody first starts training, they definitely get stronger and build more muscle way quicker. And the reason they get more sore is because they're building more muscle. So they're causing more direct damage to a muscle in a more rapid sense because it's a very novel stimulus. So their body's on overdrive for recovery. And therefore, they're building more tissue. And so as you get more muscle on your body and you get stronger, neurologically speaking, yes, you are going to get less sore, but you're also going to build less muscle or get less strength. So you're not going to see progression as fast as you get more advanced, just like you're not going to see as much soreness. So it really is correlated very well. But, you know, if you ask somebody... Should you get sore after you've been training for ten years, and they say no, and then you go, "Well, do you think you should still be able to build some muscle or get stronger in ten years into the game?" And if they say yes, then it's kind of contra and they're contraindicating themselves. I think that's how you say it. So, point being is you should have some site specific soreness, but you should not have indirect. So, if you're getting sore in the muscle you were targeting, that's great. You're choosing a good exercise. If you are getting sore in indirect places, be that your traps from doing tricep. Push downs, which shouldn't happen, or maybe your lower back when doing overhead presses, then it's, it might not be the best exercise until you a address the issue causing that dysfunction, or you just pick a different exercise because that exercise isn't right for you. Let's say so. Yeah. Uh, so number one, pick your goal. Number two, goal specific, uh, movement patterns. Then number three is uh, mind muscle connection in the pump. Number four is going to be site specific muscle soreness. And number five is progression potential. So this is the simple idea of progressive overload, right? And we all know how important that is. But um, it, it's it's more than that. It's it being possible for you in that exercise. So, um, it doesn't mean it needs to be like extraordinary or like huge possibilities, but I'd say it at least needs to be possible, right? However, you should be seeking out exercises that are more than possible. They're almost guaranteed to allow progression over time if you can. So for the small amount that cannot progress load um, by load at a certain point, you can progress them by changing tempos or adding pauses and pulsing at the bottom, getting more of that part, that partial stretch. Partial range of motion, the stretch position, or adding more volume. Uh, but the point here is that if a movement can no longer be progressively overloaded in some way, it's likely time to change the exercise. And when you're starting out, you should be choosing. When you're starting out writing a program or or, or finding the best program for you, or finding the best exercises for you in that program, you should really do so by trying to target the the exercises that you know are going to be good for you. So, for example. If I do a dumbbell bench press, I'm going to ask myself all these questions, right? So I'm going to say, okay, is my goal hypertrophy? Yes. Is this a good exercise for that? Yes, it is because I can create tension. I can, I can uh, make sure I'm getting a big stretch on it, so on and so forth. It feels good on my joints. I can feel that my, all that um it is very specific to the pushing movement pattern and is specific to my goal great um i do get a good mind muscle connection with the dumbbell bench press and i get a gnarly pump when i do higher reps i feel soreness great so in that soreness is site specific it's not it's not elsewhere and number 5 with being progression potential i can progress in this i know that over time i'm going to be able to do more volume with this weight or i'm going to be able to add weight to it so if i can do 10 reps with 90 pound dumbbells, I know at some point I'm going to be able to do 12 reps, or I know that at some point I'm going to be able to do um, 10 reps with hundred pounds. And because there is that possibility, I'm going to keep going. And I'm not going to change that movement as often. I'm going to choose it because it has a great progression potential, as well as those other aspects already went over. And I'm going to keep it around because of that progression potential, because I know I can keep it and still progress versus something like a, if we use the same muscle group, a chest fly. Right, I know that a a chest fly on a cable machine. I'm not going to progress that too much. I can progress it by changing the tempo, changing the angle, going decline, going straight ahead, going uh, incline. I can change the grips I'm using, so my hand position is different. Those things are going to create novel stimulus, stimuluses, and I'm going to change them more regularly, right, block to block, versus keeping the fly as a movement pattern always. So there's there's levels to it, and I think the big key is. The progression potential being higher is a very good thing for overall muscle growth and you're gonna get more out of those movements. And the ones that don't have as much progressive potential, you either don't do them or you don't favor them, meaning if if I'm short on time, I'm definitely gonna choose the ones that have more potential for progression over the ones that don't. But also, I'm gonna make sure that I am changing those ones out more frequently. So again, a lateral lace or a bicep curl or a tricep pushdown, you can change these out way more often because you're not going to keep adding five pounds to your tricep pushdown until you're pushed down the whole fucking cable stack, you know? And if you are pushing down the whole cable stack, which some of them you can, like I know in my gym, my, my free motion one, I am. So I need to choose different variations in order to keep stimulating my triceps. So yeah, progression potential is number five. Number six is going to be the SFR curve. So this is created by Mike Isertel, and uh, SFR stands for Stimulus to Fatigue Ratio. And I love the way this is broken down. But SFR is really just a way of determining an overall uh, an exercise's overall value in your program. Essentially, it it takes some of these already covered points that I've been talking about and it puts them into a much more compressed and like comprehensive. Uh, I mean, it's a system, right? And if the stimulus is very high, this is the system. If the stimulus is very high and the fatigue is moderate or low, it's a great exercise for hypertrophy. But if the stimulus is very low and the fatigue is very high, it's probably not the best hypertrophy exercise because you cannot consistently do enough of it or do enough volume, essentially, to actually grow because volume is a key driver of hypertrophy, right? So we know this. Now... This is why deadlifting for muscle growth isn't a great idea, in my opinion. It's, there's a huge neurological stimulus for strength, um, but it has a massive fatigue that comes along with it. So unless strength is your main goal, it just doesn't really make that much sense because your joints and your nervous system are going to be slammed. They're going to be taxed. So it makes it a great exercise for strength. That's why you don't do it all the time, and you can lift a lot of weight, which is important for the nervous system. But I think is about isolated tension on the muscle. And if we're doing deadlifts for isolate tension on the muscle, not only are we going to hit everything on our body because it's like a little lats, a little glutes, a little hamstrings, even some quads, depending on who you are, a lot of grip, traps, you're spreading out the volume across your whole body, which means it's not going to isolate or build any one muscle very much, but it's going to tax your nervous system a ton. Now, if your goal is both strength and hypertrophy, then I think it does have a place in your weekly program. And I often write it for like power building programs. Um, but if your goal is primarily hypertrophy, you're going to want to choose exercise that have a good SFR curve, a good stimulus to fatigue ratio. And that means it stimulates my muscle. So a um a chest fly, very high stimulus. I can feel it, all these things I've been talking about. I can progress it, I can feel a good pump, I have direct soreness, not indirect soreness. Um I'm I'm hitting the muscle clearly. There's no question about it. I can do enough volume, I can have a high frequency because it's not a lingering soreness. All these things I'm talking about. The The stimulus is great, but all those the the negative things, the fatigue rate of my nervous system, of my joints, of the muscle taking too long to recover, all those things is low. So stimulus, high fatigue, low, perfect stimulus, low fatigue, high, not perfect, at least not for hypertrophy. And the final thing is very obvious and that's injury risk potential. So you know, you got to consider the injury risk of every single exercise you're going to put into your plan. And if you have a torn rotator cuff, for example, um, or you've done it in the past or whatever, and you have uh, limited abilities with your shoulder, you know, the barbell bench press might not be the best exercise to grow your pecs. And the overhead press with the barbell might not be the best one to build your delts. So if you injure yourself, you can't train the specific move patterns that grow it, right? It's obvious. So you got to stay away from certain things, which sucks and defeats the point of, you know, being able to get strong in certain areas and stuff. But if you got, if you really care about strength, especially and that movement pattern cannot be progressed because you of your old injuries, then you gotta go rehab. But if you are focused on hypertrophy and you have old injuries that are holding you back from certain ranges of motion, that doesn't mean you can't build those muscles. It means you need to choose different exercises to hit those muscles. So we assess every exercises and your ability to perform them safely. And if you can't perform them safely, Um, or without aches and pains, you need to rank them as a high injury risk movement and either fix the root cause, stopping them, like I said before, or just prevent them from being back in your training because there's other ways to hit a muscle. So it's really just about making sure that you, you see what feels good and what doesn't. And if you have a high injury risk, so even the back squat, you got to be careful with back squatting for quads. It's a great quad builder for a lot of people. But if the injury risk is too high, you don't want to do a lot of it. You don't want to overload a lot. You want to get most of your volume to grow your quads from leg extensions and split squats and lunges and things like that, that aren't going to have such a high risk because there's not a bar on your back and you're not overloading it with hundreds of pounds. So injury risk is number seven. It's very obvious, but it's very, very important. So, um, you know, putting this all into practice is, is kind of how we wrap this up. And again, we're going to go through them real quick. And number one, you got to pick your goal. Then you got to pick, uh, understand the specific movement patterns and then associate those with your goals, right? Push, pull, hip, knee core, and then figure out what your goal is. And then what the exercises for those movement patterns are based on your goal. Then you're going to look for the my muscle connection in the pump, because that tells you you're targeting the right muscle. Then you're going to look at site specific muscle soreness, making sure that your soreness is only in the muscle you're targeting, not elsewhere, joints or other muscles that shouldn't be working. Then you're going to look at the progressive pot- potential. Can you progress this movement over time? And if you can't, You don't want to use it or you want to use it less often or change it in and out more often while keeping the ones that have a great progression potential. Then you're going to look at SFR, stimulus to fatigue ratio. You should have a high stimulus with a low fatigue ratio. And then last but not least, you want to make sure you don't get injured doing it. Um, and, And when you do this, you're going to be able to really understand how to choose the best exercises for you. So this went a little bit longer than I thought, but I hope you guys enjoyed this deep dive conversation into program design and understanding how to choose the best exercises for you. I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. If you enjoy this podcast, if these coaching series ones are hitting home or helping you out, drop a a question or or fill out the form um, in the description of the podcast and let us know what topic you want us to cover, what questions you have. And please make sure that if this is helping you and your training nutrition, go share this with a friend, copy the link and send it to somebody or post on your Instagram story and tag me at Cody McBroom, because we want to get this message out to more people. I appreciate you guys and we'll catch you next time.